Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, good morning. We're certainly glad that you're here with us this morning. Sounds like about three of us are awake. It's going to be a long 20 minutes. 30, 40, 20 is close enough. But we are glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're visiting. Uh, Please uh, don't rush out the door when services are over. Let us get a minute uh, to get to know you, to introduce ourselves, especially if it's your first time visiting today. Uh, We are just very glad and encouraged uh, to have you with us today. Genesis 3 is a chapter that I'm sure a lot of us have read several times. You know, we'll start a beginning of the year, read through the Bible in a year program, and most of us, I would imagine, make it to at least Genesis chapter 3 before we fall off of the wagon. It's a story that you probably read a lot growing up, and I think as we look back to the story, I wonder if sometimes we view just how cunning the serpent was with the right perspective. You know, I think of a New Testament passage in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And he says, arm yourself with the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now that word for schemes is pretty interesting. It only pops up twice in the New Testament. The other time it's used, it's used in Ephesians as well, in chapter 4, where Paul encourages to no longer be children or to be immature. He says, tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. So we're warned very strongly in the New Testament about the schemes that this tempter has with him. And these schemes are not just, you know, some kind of you know, clever little ploy, they are extremely intelligent. They are purposeful. They are focused. And what you find is the one that is father over all of them is highly skilled at what he does. Namely, deceiving those who would seek to follow God. And that's exactly what he does to Eve in the garden. So what I would like to do for the short amount of time that we have this morning is to go back and look at that original scheme that the serpent gives to Eve. Like what is, how does he choose to lead her away from God? What can we learn? What things can we be on guard against as we read through Genesis 3? So that we have four lies from Genesis 3 that we want to look at this morning. And for each lie, we're going to offer a defense against those lies. So let's take a look again at the text that was just read for us. Let's see the first thing that the serpent says. He says to the woman at the end of verse 1, Did God actually say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice here that Satan's not going to give Eve a direct challenge to disobey God yet. He doesn't immediately start off and like show his hand to be very obvious and say, Hey, you know what? You ought to just reject what God told you to do because what he told you to do is not a good thing to do anyway. Now he's going to get there. 
And at the end of this exchange, he's going to come out with some very strong accusations against God. But for now, he's content to just exaggerate the command to make it look unreasonable and to make it look too strict or unfair. No direct challenge yet. He's beginning to question God, but he's going to knowingly exaggerate. Now, the serpent, Satan here knows exactly what God has commanded. And you'll notice he actually quotes the command given to Adam better than Eve does. Eve exaggerates the command too. When she responds, she said, no, no, no. She does correct him. She says, no, 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 we can eat from some of the trees. It's not as if God filled this garden with wonderful trees that we read in chapter two are pleasing to the sight and are good for food. He didn't put us in a garden full of these trees and said, no, you can't eat any of them. That certainly would be unfair. That would be a little too strict, right? That would be too restrictive. God said we can't eat some, but there is one tree that we cannot eat from. But she adds a little phrase to this. Did you notice that when we read it a moment ago? She said, he said, you cannot eat it nor touch it lest you die. And I'd invite you to go back and read in chapter two, the command that God gives to Adam. He does not tell Adam that he can't touch the tree. He just tells Adam that he can't eat from the tree. So it's pretty interesting here that Satan is going to exaggerate God's command to make it seem unfair. And Eve actually exaggerates the command herself. Even though she does correct, she still exaggerates. And I think this lie is very present today. You know, in a country in which freedom is held as a core value, if not the primary moral value in our country now, we should be free to live as we want, to choose uh, who we want to be and how we want to be that person. And it seems that in the name of freedom, a lot of God's commands are increasingly being viewed as too restrictive to be reasonable. God does put standards on our behavior, and not just on our behavior, on our attitudes. And one of the key lies that this tempter, and make no mistake, it's still the tempter that is fueling these lies in our culture today. It's not as if he was just there in the garden trying to convince Eve of this, and we're all free. You know, we're all away from this, and this very far removed. We're not at risk for these same schemes. No, Paul very plainly tells us in Ephesians that we need to be guarding against these exact same lies that take Adam and Eve away from God and towards, well, the serpent himself, if not their own inclinations. These lies are very present for us today. And certainly chief among them is this lie that God's commandments are too restrictive to be reasonable. In other words, the lie goes that God is taking away our freedom and denying us the ability to live really well. So those things that he has told us not to do, if we could just do those things, or if we could just maybe somehow find a way to go beyond those commands, if we can rationalize ourselves beyond the commands of God, well, that's where we can find the thing that's really going to make me happy, or in a much larger sense, the thing that is really going to bring me what I want in life. This is not a new lie in our particular culture. 1913, a social activist named Emma Goldman had this to say about the commands of God. She said, Christianity is the breaker of man's will to dare and do. An iron net 
a straight jacket that does not allow him to expand or grow. In other words, the commands of God are so restrictive that you'll never actually get to live life if you follow them. It's the same lie that we read about in the garden. And I wonder if it's a lie that has ever popped up at least in the dark corners of our minds. I wonder especially maybe in some of our younger days as we look to some of the activities that our, some of our friends or acquaintances are being involved in and we see the kind of, well maybe fun or happiness or just immediate shallow consequence that they have for those sinful behaviors. And I wonder if we look at that and we think, man, I really wish that I was allowed to have that kind of fun. Or I really wish that I could enjoy partaking in these kinds of things, but as it is, you know, I guess I'm just going to have to do the right thing and, and live a pretty boring life. And sometimes we talk about living a righteous life or we'll complain about, you know, having to be boring maybe sometimes if we're going to follow the rules. Following the rules is generally not considered to be a real edgy, exciting sort of thing, but breaking the rules always is. And so when Satan here is going to exaggerate and say, look, well, did God say you really can't do, you can't eat anything? Like, isn't that a little bit ridiculous that God would tell you that he's going to give you all these wonderful things in life and you can't enjoy any of them? Well, we get the exact same lie. And in the case of Genesis 3, the response to this lie, all we have to do is look and see what God has done so far in the story. If you back up to Genesis 1 and 2, what do we find God doing in the creation? Well, in the first instance, we find him bringing life and bringing light where there is otherwise none of it, right? There's no light until God says, let there be light. There's no life until God creates it. And God throughout the creation account is always bringing new life and refining the creation until the very end, he says, it is very good. And in fact, the only thing that he sees that is not good is that humanity is alone. Man is alone. And he says, it's not good that man should be alone, so I'm going to make a helper for him. God has done everything in the chapters leading up to this to build life. And not just to build life in general, but to give humanity a special place among the creation. You'll notice there's nothing else in all of creation that God says, I'm going to make this particular thing in my image. Only humanity is created in the image of God. You'll find also that nothing else in humanity is given dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Only humanity is selected by God from his own grace, from his own loving creative activity. Only humanity is selected to join in with God, as Tucker mentioned in his prayer a moment ago, in his mission for the creation. Humanity is the only thing that God calls alongside of him to say, rule along with me over this creation. And he still invites us to join in his mission today. So you'll notice that God, in every instance, in the Genesis creation account and everywhere else, that he is always interested in bringing life to his creation. So when we find the restrictions that God's law places upon us, 
these restrictions are not to be thought of as the serpent would have us think is, you know, unreasonable constraints, an iron net, a straitjacket, a breaker of our will to dare and do. Notice simply the boundary of where life actually is. It's as simple as that. And I think we can take a fish, for example, here. The fish are limited to dwell in the ocean, are they not? And let's say we decide that in 2022, you know, we're enlightened. We are so much more uh, aware of oppression and things like that in our world today. So let's say we take the fish and we say, you know what? It is unreasonably restrictive for us to say a fish has to be relegated to water. And how oppressive for the fish that he's relegated to water. Look look at all the world that's outside of the ocean. Look at all the world that's outside of the fishbowl. Is it not oppressive for us to leave those fish there? You know what? In the name of freedom, in the name of pure freedom, the value that we worship above all other values, in the name of freedom, we, as enlightened humans, are going to take all of the fish and put them on the beach. And we're going to let them enjoy the freedom that comes with the dry land. Well, we feel really good about ourselves. We pat ourselves on the back and we show up a day later and the beach smells terrible because the fish are limited to water. It's not, no no one in their right mind would say that it's oppressive and that it's unreasonably restrictive for a fish to be relegated to the water. No, the fish is relegated to the water because that is where the fish can have life. And when you cross the very clear boundary to the surface, there's no life there for the fish. There's something there. Yeah, there's a lot of things that exist outside of the ocean. But if you're a fish, none of that is going to bring you life in any way, shape or form. In fact, it's going to bring you death. The commands of God are the clear markers as to what is going to bring you life And what is going to bring you death? You remember what God tells Adam when he says, don't eat from the tree. He says, don't eat from this tree. And Satan's going to accuse him of some really terrible things in a moment. But God doesn't say, look, don't eat from the tree because I said so. And because just, hey, look, you don't need to know why. And I just told you why. He says, don't eat from the tree because when you eat from that tree, you're going to die. I have given you life. I have given you a garden that is full of life. I have given you dominion over it. And there's one thing that is going to take this life that I have given you away from you. And it's if you eat that tree. So the command of God is certainly not restrictive or oppressive. It's a guide to lead them towards that which is truly life. And none of that has changed. The commands that we have from God, even though they're sold to us, is way too oppressive and restrictive and boring and you can't live a life that's worth anything if you follow them. No, God is going to tell you if you really want the things that are actual life, if you want to take hold of that which is truly life, you stick to the area that God lays out for that instead of going beyond because beyond is only death. Now, I do want to take a look at one more thing as we discuss this first lie before we move into the other ones. Look at how effective the lie is. Look in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she ate. So what, what convinced her in the end to partake of the fruit? Well, it's because she sees that it is actually desired. It's something that is pleasing to her eyes. It's something that she wants, in other words. Now she has been twisted around and manipulated around in very short order here, by the way. That the thing that God prescribes as death now to her looks like life. And I think the exact same thing happens to us, doesn't it? We might see something that we know is restricted by God's command, but we think that is what is going to bring me completion. That's what's going to bring me fulfillment. And I think a pretty good illustration here, you think back to uh, maybe some of your high school days, and we got a lot of high schoolers here today, so think about maybe, you know, back to like, I don't know, Friday. <laughs> but you think and you look around at what your buddies are doing, and you see what's going on. And maybe your friends are participating in a certain activity, and you really want and you value their friendship. You value the sense of belonging that you get from your friends. And that's something that we all value, and it's a desire that's built into all of us. Remember, the only thing in the garden that wasn't good is that man was alone. So yeah, we all desire companionship. It's not a bad thing. But Satan knows you desire companionship. He knows that in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But what he's going to try to do, he's going to tell you that, hey, this thing that you need, the only place you can find it is over here. God told you you can find it here, but you can't find it there because remember, your friends are off doing all this stuff. So if you want belonging, if you want companionship, uh, God's not going to give that to you. You're going to have to participate in these things to get it. And that is where your true life lies. It is so interesting to me that the writer of Genesis is going to tell you specifically that Eve sees that the tree is, is pleasing to the sight and desirable or good for food, would you like to guess how literally every tree in the garden is described in the previous chapter? Would you like to take a guess? You don't have to guess. Go look in chapter 2 and verse 9. Actually, let's back up to verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God surrounded Eve with exactly what she was looking for here. It was all around her on every other tree and somehow Satan in his cunning is able to convince her, no, 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 no. The thing you want, even though God's put it all around you, it's not there. It is here in the one thing he says not to partake of. And so she takes of it. In the beginning, there's only one area specifically marked off by God as, hey, no life past this point. And humanity went there anyway. And we'll continue to see why as we move forward. So the first lie is simply an exaggeration to say that God's rules are unfair and too restrict, which, make no mistake, is a lie. The next lie that Satan gives her is very direct. He's going to tell her in verse 3, he's going to respond back to her, excuse me, in verse 4, he's going to respond back to her and say, you will not surely die. You're not going to die if you eat of this tree. So the second lie he gives her is there's not much to lose if we step outside of the area that God marks off as there is life here. 
In other words, he lessens the negative effects of breaking God's command, or more so the consequences than the effects. And here's another interesting little note about what Eve says. You know, Eve actually does the same thing. She actually lessens the negative consequences here too. Now, I am no expert in the original languages here, but we do happen to have a few in our building, namely Dr. Bailey, I know, is sitting right there, so you can ask him the questions later. But I do know in the original, when God says, you will surely die if you eat of the fruit, this is very, very emphatic. It is the most emphatic way you can get across. If you eat this tree, you will surely, you are definitely going to die. And I believe literally it says, dying, you will die. And when Eve quotes this and says, there's one tree that we cannot eat and we can't touch because in the day we do, we'll die. No emphasis, by the way. The same emphasis that's given in the previous chapter is not given here. We'll just die. There's no added emphasis. The consequences Even though subtle, the consequences are, the negative consequences are reduced just a little bit. And I do find it really interesting and challenging that Satan actually quotes the command better than Eve does. And he says, no, you will not surely die. It is not true that you're definitely going to die if you eat of this tree. The consequences aren't that bad. And I think that we're fooling ourselves if we don't think that that same lie is ever present Today, Certainly we don't have to say much to make the point that we're constantly told that our sins don't actually lead to death. And I think a lot of times we actually tell ourselves this same lie. Maybe we have a particular struggle that we have. And this applies most directly, I believe, to those sins which usually get kept secret. Well, why does it apply there? Well, because the sins that we keep secret generally we are dodging the immediate consequences of those sins, are we not? When you keep a sin secret, you're not having to basically pay the bill right now. But make no mistake, the bill is coming and there's going to be a day when you have to pay it. But since we are now living in the time where the bill's not due, we think that we're getting away with it. And we constantly say, well, it's not like I've hurt anybody. You know, it's not I didn't kill anybody. You know, what, I, what I've done, it didn't have a negative effect on anybody else. And when we say that, We're buying into the exact same lie that the serpent gives us here in Genesis 3. It's the exact same one. Nothing's changed. It's simply that the consequences for our sin really isn't that bad. You know, because it's not this intense, somebody got physically harmed or no one was killed at the most extreme. Well, then, you know, that this particular sin must not be that bad. The consequences are not so bad. When we buy into this lie, we have really lost sight Not just of what sin is, but who God is and what God has planned for us. It's so much bigger than just the simple little thought that the consequences aren't that bad. But to start here, simply but seriously, sin is absolutely a matter of life and death. Maybe not a matter of immediate life and death, as we see with Adam and Eve. They don't immediately fall over dead like Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. But make no mistake... Their access to the tree of life is cut off. And they are beginning to die from the moment that they eat from the tree. In scripture, sin is not just some harmless mischief that you shouldn't do. But if you do it, you know, it's, uh, we, we can work it out. You shouldn't do it. No, sin in scripture is, if you want life, you can't. You can't do it. 
It's not a, if you want life, you probably should not dabble in it. No, no, it is a, you cannot. You must not if you want to keep life. Because we all know the wages of sin, right? From Romans 6. We all know the passage really well. The wages of sin is, well, it's death. Well, why are the wages of sin death? It's just because God is some arbitrary God that decides, you know what? This list of things is going to be good. This list of things is going to be bad. And I'm going to sit back and watch. And as soon as you break one, boom, you're gone. No, it's because God has a real plan for you. And he has a real plan for me. And he has a real plan for our life. And the thing that we so often view as just a list of these arbitrary commands is not that. It is markers to show you. Life is not there. I know you want life. You're not going to find it in these places. There's so much to lose when it comes to breaking the commands of God. And sometimes the immediate consequences are really bad. Sometimes breaking a command of God and engaging like in the case of marriage and adultery if you choose to go outside of that particular command of God, you have a lot of immediate consequences. Your family is going to fall apart, or at least you're going to deal with some major, major problems immediately, immediately, as soon as that is discovered. Other sins that maybe we don't pay the immediate consequence for, make no mistake, the death of sin is not always immediate, but it is 100% certain even if we have hidden and avoided the immediate consequence. So the second lie, there's not much to lose. The third lie is that there's much to gain. So let's take a look at what he tells her. He says, you won't surely die. God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only... You know, the command is too restrictive anyway. You know, God's, he's too restrictive anyway. His rules don't make any sense, number one. Number two, if you break the rule, you know, the consequences aren't that bad. And you might not even have any. And in the third place, you can gain so much if you will just go beyond the command of God here. And obviously, the lie persists today and we've already mentioned this a few times so we won't mention it again but I think of a passage like Mark 8 36 and 37 when you think of what comes along with what you stand to gain from sinful behavior what and what do we stand to gain from sinful behavior well maybe you stand to gain some immediate pleasure maybe you stand to gain some sort of status or wealth but I can promise you that whatever positive consequence you think is waiting on you because of some sort of sinful activity, it's not going to be enough to justify leaving behind the life of God. Mark chapter 8, 36 and 37, Jesus says this, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You can accumulate the treasures of earth, as Jesus calls them in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, you can accumulate those things as much as you want. You know, you can, you can engage in whatever kind of behavior you want and you'll get the result from those things. And for the Pharisees in 
Matthew chapter 6, we're not talking necessarily about money the whole chapter. We're talking about the honor that comes from other people. And he says, look, uh, I don't want you to give like the Pharisees and the hypocrites because when they give, they're not doing it for God. They're doing it for themselves. And he says, truly, I say to you, they, they have their reward. They've got it. They have their reward. He says the same thing about them, about uh, praying and fasting. He says, look, they have the reward that they are searching for and they're enjoying it right now. And that's it. They don't have any sort of reward from their father who is in heaven. So then, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you, have, what do you stand to gain from sinful behavior? If we think about this practically, what do you have to gain? Whatever you stand to gain is not lasting. It's not lasting. It is not truly life. Make no mistake, there's nothing to be gained from going outside of God's command. The final law, or excuse me, the final lie here that we get from Satan is the most intense. And it's what he's been building to this entire time. Look what he says. We've read this already. We'll read it again in verse four. He says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. In other words, look, the only reason God doesn't want you to eat from this tree is because he is selfish and he is manipulating you with this law. He does not want you to be like him. There's so much more that you could have and you can't, we've already said, you know, there's, there's so much good to be gained from sin. But the point here is that God knows it will be good for you and God doesn't want you to have it. Satan is not just trying to tell them that the laws are unreasonable. He is going to make claims about the character of God himself. As one commentator puts it, Satan declares here that God is not good or gracious and that he does not have Adam and Eve's best interest at heart. The serpent depicted God as selfish, jealous, and deceptive. Now, it's one thing to make claims against some of the commands of God. It's another thing entirely to make claims against the character of God. This is the biggest lie of them all, and he waits until the end to hit her with this one. But you can see how she would be more prone to accept it at this point. If you have a God that gives you arbitrary rules that don't make any sense. If you have a God that uh, gives you a bunch of rules that really is not that bad. If you break them and you stand a lot to gain from them, what kind of God do you have? Satan is going to answer the question here. And I do think that our world tries to convince us of the same lie today. It doesn't seem so long ago... uh, Kyle Butt had a debate with a prominent atheist author named Dan Barker, and he argues in a way eerily similar to what the serpent has to say here in the garden. He called God a petty tyrant, only interested in glorifying himself with little regard for anyone or anything else. He insisted that God is not good because he's happy to condemn those to torture uh, who do not agree to worship him. There's a simple, profound answer to this lie. And we all observed it a moment ago. 
To answer this lie, we don't have to look any further than the cross. What kind of God would willingly humble himself to humiliation, torture, and death at the hand of his own creation? A God that loves his creation. That's the kind of God that would do that. A God that created the garden specifically for Adam and Eve to have life and to have it abundantly. He is not a God interested in giving any of us pointless rules to follow. He is a God interested in giving us all life and giving us the most meaningful form of it. So as we consider these lies, as we consider the things that the serpent would have Adam and Eve, not just Adam and Eve to believe, but me and you right now as well, working on us constantly, day in and day out, chipping away. Hey, you know, this, you don't have to keep this particular command anyway. You know, hey, hey, you know what? And if, if you, you know, God might not be such a good God anyway, if he even exists. And now make no mistake, he's still chipping away at me and you just as he was chipping away at Eve in the garden. The schemes and lies of Satan are not trapped in the past. This is why Peter describes him as a roaring lion seeking those whom he might devour. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.3 says he is worried that some, some among the Corinthians will be led away from Christ just as Eve was deceived by the serpent. That was an ever-present danger in the mind of the New Testament writers, and it's one that's with us today. So Eve and her husband Adam fell to the cunning serpent. And I wonder what we will decide to do. Regardless of what lies in our past, I wonder what we will resolve to do today. Will we follow Paul's admonitions in Ephesians to take up the full armor of God so that we can stand against these lies? Will we be watchful? Will we remain constant in prayer and in the word? Will we encourage one another as long as it is called today so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Or will we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that we can have any sort of life without God? Will we keep telling ourselves that our sins can give us something worthwhile? Will we tell ourselves that we have any kind of hope and meaning in life apart from having our sins wiped clean from the blood of Christ in baptism? The same God that prepared life for Adam and Eve is the God that has prepared life for you. And we access that by grace through faith. A faith that is active. A faith that is committed. And we begin that journey into new life as we read all over the New Testament, especially in Romans chapter 6, that we die with Christ and we rise to new life through baptism. And there's water right here behind me and I wonder if any of us have a good reason to wait today. I'm sure you've got a reason to wait, but I can promise you it's not a good one. 
I wonder if any of us have a good reason to wait to access the life that God has to give. Because what God has to give you is not just something that can be generally positive and can, you know, make day-to-day life a little bit different and, and things can be a little bit better and maybe you get a little... No, no, no. What God has to offer you is actual eternal life. And if you don't take it, then what you have waiting for you is death. I wonder why on earth you would choose the threat of death over the promise of eternal life today. God has prepared life for all of us and he is here. He is hoping today, right now, that you will choose it. And so are we at the University Church of Christ. If you need anything, we hope that you'll come now as we sing together.